Continuing our, our study through the Old Testament, we're looking at uh, the Old Testament really from a historical and theological perspective. So what that means is we're trying to understand not only what the text is communicating on the whole and what God is doing through these characters and what the biblical authors are showing that God is doing through these characters, but also actually looking at the history surrounding these characters, what we know about the, the period that they're in, about the time period they're in, about the geography in which they're in, how the land and the cities and the people around them actually play a role in what's happening in the biblical text. And so uh, some of that has its complications as we don't, there's often times where we don't know a ton, but we know some. And so we have perhaps created more questions than we've actually provided answers in some cases. And in, in others, it can actually help a great deal as we look at uh, just some kind of, I guess you would say, inside baseball into what's going on in their, or, or it seems, in their life. And so as a means of review, there's a couple of things that are really important as we think about looking through the Old Testament. There's really, it pops up four major regions in the Old Testament that are of great concern that we have to kind of nail in our heads and sort of affix the geography in our minds if we can. And really, it concerns the Mesopotamian region, um, the land of Egypt, uh, the, uh, let me go back real quick and pull this up real quick, the Mesopotamian region, the land of Egypt, the area of Palestine, which uh, will also be called Canaan and Israel, and the term Fertile Crescent. Um, uh, again, if you're, if you're French, if you prefer, all right, you can say croissant, all right? That's a perfectly acceptable. Um, I'll make the same jokes every week, so just get used to it. Um, okay, <laughs> do, do I? <laughs> oh, Lord, oh, goodness. Uh, okay, so basically the, the layout of the land is the important, the most important regions are going to be colored in green here in the land, Mesopotamia being right here at the, on, the, on the further right of the screen, going up from the Persian Gulf. Uh, then we have Palestine or Canaan, which is going to be in this land right here, also coming to be known as Israel. Um, we have obviously Egypt down here. Most of you are going to be familiar with that. And the whole thing really makes up the Fertile Crescent, mostly this part from Palestine up to, um, to the, the Mesopotamian region is going to be the Fertile Crescent, but often... Egypt is considered a part of that as well. Those are, most of the Old Testament occurs in one of those places. Uh, most all of the people in the Old Testament that are called out are going to be at least pretty well connected to one of those regions, or at least in that, in that general vicinity. And so having a kind of a broad sweeping overview of the, of the area, I think, is, is pretty helpful. Now, what we talked about last week was the nature of this central character that's pointed out. We, you know, you, you have, as Genesis opens up, it's really pretty global for the first, like, 11 chapters. It's really concerned with kind of God's operation on the whole. Of course, there are identified characters in the middle of that. You obviously have the, the creation of the entire world and singling out a couple uh, at the beginning. And then there's the destruction of the entire world and singling out a family there in Genesis chapter 6 who survives the flood. 
And then, obviously, as we get down to uh, Babylon, everybody's kind of gathering together. They all speak a common language, and they're building a tower that's right there in that Mesopotamian region in what is now Babylon. Uh, The same word for Babylon is used there, the Tower of of Babel, probably should be the Tower of Babylon uh, used there, but that's the idea. Babylon takes this really prominent role there at the end of Genesis chapter 11, or 10 and 11. And so we see Babylon coming to prominence, but then out of all of that, God kind of strikes the people and scatters them abroad and confuses their language, and yet out of that, he singles out a family. And so we get from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of Genesis, really, the whole story is concerning one central family, and it's the family of Abraham. Now, why did we say that is? Why is that important? Remember? What's that? Yeah, because back in Genesis chapter 3, remember that the Adam and Eve had sinned and God delivers the judgment for all three of them and He tells the serpent, there is one coming, an offspring of the woman who will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. And the entire book of Genesis, in fact, really the entire Old Testament, if you look at a broad enough perspective, is all about tracing that single seed all the way into uh, the, the close of the Old Testament. The irony of it is that the Old Testament closes without having identified that seed. Right? That's a problem. So this is the reason Matthew opens his gospel with the lineage of that seed. Right? Here he is. He's coming on the scene. That's where we're at on Sunday morning is here is this seed. We're tracing his bringing in this kingdom that God is bringing into the world that you can be a part of, that you can be saved, right? So this, the New Testament authors are considering themselves having written the last pages of what is the, we would say, the Old Testament, right? They're closing it out. They're finishing the story. And so, go ahead. Was that their idea? Because, I mean, when it was canonized, men put this in order. Yeah. Because they didn't want to be Yeah, in particular, the New Test- the gospel writers, um, for sure, are closing out this story. Um, I think, uh, I mean, anytime you say, yes, that was in John's mind when he wrote the gospel, you're always in, in tough waters. But it seems evident, both by the way, let's say Matthew, for instance, opens his gospel, and the way, you know, John closes the entire New Testament in Revelation, uh, it seems evident that their understanding of what they're doing is finishing the story that was begun in the, in the Old Testament. So, yes, absolutely. Now, the way the Bible comes to be fashioned the way it is in terms of put together in a number of books and, um, and the order that it comes to be presented in and all, all of those kinds of things is a little bit different Old Testament to New Testament. But, yes, I think what's in their mind is we're finishing the story that begun in the Old Testament, and we're telling you the close of this story is Jesus Christ. He's it. And he, he's the one you're looking for, the one you're anticipating, the one that you've been waiting for for 400 years has, has come. Timothy? No, I think the way the Old Testament was arranged, the Chronicles is the last book. And they start the creation. It ends with being kicked out and coming back into the Old Testament. That's right. 
Right. Yeah, and the Masoretic text ends with, with um, Chronicles, and that's exactly what it is, is there's this hope of restoration following exile. Yeah. Um, the English Bible, our English Bibles have obviously taken more of a chronological approach and sort of tried to end it chronologically with Malachi. But yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, Abraham is singled out as this individual character who begins this family, and it's promised to him that he's going to have a family. That's what's given to him at the very beginning. And the irony, both in his name and in the promise that's given to him, is what? He has no kids, and he's not getting any younger. And we, we, don't, we watch him in the story not get any younger. Um, so we said Abraham was probably, we're looking time-wise, time probably somewhere around the year 2166. It might be a little plus or minus, but it's not going to be too far. Um, so somewhere around that, that year is where we think he was born. Not only that, but we see in the story that God maintained his faithfulness uh, to humanity by singling out this singular um, Abram, this character Abram, and, te- and telling us in the story that this is the person through whom the seed is going to come. We're going to watch that happen as Abraham has kids and has, as his kids have kids. We're going to see how there's a, there's a lot of uh, tumultuous happenings around this seed coming to bear um, throughout throughout the book of, uh, of, of Genesis. Not only that, but what we're also going to see, and we're going to see this a lot today, is that there is a promise that's given to Abraham. There's a number of promises that God is going to give to Abraham. And what we're going to see in, in Abram's life is that all the promises that God gives to him are put to the test. Almost every single one of them is put to the test. And there is a question that's implied through Genesis, especially through Genesis 12 and Abraham's story, 22 or so. There's a, there's a question that's implied, is God worthy of being trusted? I mean, is he? We, at this point in the text, if we're just reading along, we, we don't know. We know he's destroyed the earth. We know he's created Adam and Eve. We know he's created the world. We know a lot of those kinds of things. And we know that his promises of judgment so far have really come, come through. We, we get that. But when he promises blessing to Abraham, is he faithful to his promise? And, and talk about something that actually translates into our lives in New, Te- in New Testament as New Testament saints or in the New Testament church. Of course it does. I mean, we have that question all the time running through our brain. Here, is, here we've been sitting 2,000 years from Christ's first coming, and we have a standing promise. What is it, standing promise? Yeah. Wait, wake up, y'all. What is it? <laughs> yeah, he's coming back. This is the standing promise. And here in maybe uh, a little bit here in America, but then if you look abroad as well, our, our brothers and sisters around the world, China right now facing it uh, heavily, uh, Iran, Iraq, churches, all kinds of places, uh, completely underground, undergoing uh, persecution and all kinds of other things. And, and hey, you don't think they're saying with John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus and come quickly? And you don't think there's a question every once in a while? Is, is he faithful to his promise? Does he know where we're at? And is he, is he really going to deliver on this promise? Well, part of what the Old Testament lays out for us is God making a lot of promises. And to answer your question on the New Testament, the New Testament is coming in saying, 
he's keeping a lot of his promises in the New Testament, right? And so, but he's, he's making a lot of promises. And in, in Abraham's story, we're going to see those promises put to the test. And so uh, the first thing that we're, uh, let me make sure we're here. Okay. Um, we know that Abraham is, uh, is forced shortly after God gives him this promise in Genesis chapter 12. We see that Abraham is forced to leave the promised land so in Egypt. And remember where he's at. You remember he's in the Negev at that time, which is in the southern part, if you just picture in your mind, I don't have an image just yet, sorry, uh, of, the, of the promised land, down at the very bottom of the promised land, and that almost like the connection between Canaan and, uh, and Egypt in that the southern part of Palestine is the Negev. And so he's down there in that region, down just to the west and a little bit to the south of the Dead Sea. He's in that region, and he's sitting there, but all of a sudden, famine strikes the land. And so what's he left to do? Well, he goes to Egypt. But see, this is, this is actually an important thing in the story because in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, what has God promised to give to Abraham? Or Abram? What's that? He's promised to give him the land. This land is, is for your children. Your children are going to have this land. Now, he hasn't told him any other information about it yet. He's going to clue him in on a lot more information a little bit later. But right now, he's told him, you're going to have this land. Well, then he's down here in the Negev, hanging out in the land, and all of a sudden, famine strikes the land, and he's forced to leave it. Okay? So he has to go to Egypt, right? Um, but then there's another problem that happens in the text. Does anybody have Genesis 12, chapter 12, verses 10 to 20 open? You can go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you don't have it. If not, it's on your packet in the back. Somebody read Genesis 12, 10 to 20 out loud. Yeah, so there's another problem in the text here. that There's a promise of God that's been made in the first half of chapter 12 to Abraham. Abram. One is the land, but there's another promise that's been made. What is that other promise? Child. Does in one verse, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he promises him a child. He's going to give him descendants. And so Abram is not only forced to leave the land of the Negev and go to Egypt because of famine, but when he gets there, what does he encounter? What, what does he anticipate encountering? Being killed. Because Abraham is good looking. And so he's afraid that they're going to see her 
they're going to kill him, and they're going to take her. Abraham has a child yet, or he does not have a child? He does not have a child. So God has promised to Abraham that not only are you going to have a child, but I'm going to make of you a great nation. He doesn't have a child yet. He's afraid of dying. Put two and two together. Is Abraham really trusting what the Lord has already told him? No, he's not. (laughs) Abraham is scheming for a way to protect himself, not trusting that the Lord is actually going to deliver on his promise. Because again, Abraham has really just met this God. He's not that familiar with this God. We, We don't know, is this God trustworthy or not? He's made me a promise, but I don't know if he's going to deliver on that promise. And so he goes down and he cooks up this story that you're my sister. And technically she kind of is, but, and he, he'll use that as an excuse later on. But, but, right? so, um, but, he, but he's got this story cooked up. We're going to tell, tell him that you're, you're my sister and that way I'll save my life. Because let's be honest, God gives us promises, but he needs a little of our help sometimes. Because he hasn't thought about all the kinks that could happen in the, in the, in the plan. All right? Okay, so he doesn't handle our day-to-day life as well and doesn't know about all of those things. So Abraham cooks up this story. Now, here's what we do know about the area is that there is uh, an, uh, the Nile overflows regularly. And because of this uh, you know, overflowing of the Nile, that would just what would happen is the banks of the Nile would be flooded, the area surrounding the Nile would be flooded, and what is produced from that flood, but obviously rich farmlands. And so the Pharaoh had always, has always kind of had this um, myth about him that he controls the rising and the falling of the Nile, right? Or that he controls the Nile itself, which is pretty interesting when we get to Exodus when the first thing that struck is the Nile, right? <laughs> and it's turned to, turned to blood. Um, so the Nile would overflow, and then what happens as a result of supplying the farmlands with water is the, the Egyptian area becomes known as the breadbasket of the eastern Mediterranean world. So when famine strikes, the area of Canaan, Palestine, that area, or even maybe even the Mesopotamian region, what happens but a great migration down to Egypt? Because, hey, at least there we can go and we can get fed and we can have food. All right, that makes sense? Now, here's the good part about history is that we could, if we really tried, we could probably peg at least the, the, at least get close to the Pharaoh that's on the throne at the time Abraham gets down there. Because we know that he leaves um, the area of the Mesopotamian region and Haran after his father-in-law dies in about 2091 BC. And he, he, we have some other dates in the rest of the text of Genesis. So we know at least the approximate years that he would be headed down into Egypt. And so if that's the case, um, then it's most likely that Wakari Akitos, that's not how you pronounce his name, but I'm just going to call him Akitos. Akitos Third uh, is on the throne. Now this happens to be at a really weak moment in the Egyptian in Egyptian history, one dynasty is coming to a close. Another dynasty is about to take over, and so there's this sort of, to be honest, kind of a soft spot in Egyptian history is about right here, and so it seems as though Abram is 
more or less has passage through this, this area. Of course, they take note of him coming in, and uh, we see, we've, we've read the story of them uh, seeing him uh, come in and, and taking his wife and everything like this. But that's, that's probably the person that was on the throne when this scene takes place. Um, we don't know a lot more about this person, unfortunately, but that's probably the one that was on the throne. So any questions so far? Well, there's some debate. Um, there's a coffin in, where's it at now? I don't remember where it's on display. Um, that they think, some people think might actually be his. And it's one that's, uh, it's like a cedar sarcophagus. And it's got a bunch of different hieroglyphics on it. It's pretty well painted. Um, but they're, they're not entirely sure. But some people attribute it to him. And others don't. So, yeah. Richard, were you going to ask a question? I felt like you were. I was waiting on the glory of the Lord to come down when you asked the question. But, <laughs> uh, okay. So get the picture. Here's Abraham, and he's not quite sure about the Lord's promise to him. I, it appears, and so he cooks up the story, and he goes um, to kind of protect himself. And they move into um, the Egyptian, uh, in the land of Egypt. But it's not long after that they come back out. It's, it, it doesn't seem like, in the, at least the author of Genesis doesn't make it seem like, and I, and I think according to the years, it, it probably isn't that long until after he comes out of the land. But in spite of Abraham's deceit, the Lord blesses him and Lot. And this is an important point in the text of Genesis, is that Lot is also blessed. He's with Abraham, and, and we see in the text that both he and Lot, when they come out, are, are pretty well off. And we get this at the beginning of Genesis chapter 13. You may have that at the beginning of Genesis chapter 13. I ran off and forgot my Bible, so I don't have it there. Uh, uh, that's good, right there. So what we see already by verse, what was that, about verse 5 or so? Yeah, Th through verse 5 of, of, um, of, of Genesis 13, is that it's not only Abraham that has a good spread. Lot, it seems, also has a good spread. Now we talked about in the past weeks that it seems as though um, Abraham is probably part of that kind of Amorite migration that's coming into Canaan, and uh, and there there's a it's a merchant class that's coming in, and so he's probably got a good bit coming with him already, just from being a merchant in the Mesopotamian region. Lot is with him as well, and may have also been from, benefited from that. But the point remains that when they come out of Egypt, both of them have a pretty good spread, and this leads to a point of contention in the story itself, a very important point of contention is that when they come up out of Egypt, Lot and Abraham are, they're getting on each other's nerves, it seems like. 
<laughs> At least, maybe not them, but some of their people are getting on each other's nerves, and they're, they're a little bit too close to one another. We got a lot of room to spread out, and we need, we need to be able to spread out. So what happens in the story? Keep reading. If, David, if you will. Hang on right there. Okay, so we're, we're in a point in the story where Abram and, uh, and Lot are where? Where are they at? Where are they located right now? You remember? What's that? Between Bethel and Ai. I'm going to show you the map in just a second. Sorry, Shannon. I'm going to show you a map in just a second so you'll get an idea of where this is at. It's, it, it's here. I got, I've actually got some pretty interesting maps today, I think. So, uh, so But we'll, we'll get the geography in just a second. But there, between Bethel and Ai, this is a place familiar with Abraham. He's, he's camped there before. So they're, they're in Bethel and Ai, and they're looking around the land, and he says, look, the whole land is before us. Now, that's an important phrase because it actually lines up very nicely with what we know about the land at the time. We, we talked about previously that there's an Amorite migration that seems to be coming into the land of Canaan at the time, but the Canaanites that are in the land at the time don't have a firm grasp on the land, it seems like. They have, uh, at best, little city-states. We're going to see some kings here in just a minute that will kind of come up you know, some years later, but the vast majority of what we know about the time was there's a large nomadic population that's in Canaan at the time that doesn't have a firm grasp or rule on the land. And that's going to change a little bit with the Amorites that come in. But at the, at the time, Abram and Lot are in the land, they're looking around and they're saying, the land's freely available to us. We can go hitherto and yon. And that's precisely what historically we're seeing from archaeology and things like that, is that's actually true. And so they're, they're able to move wherever they want. Now, where does Lot pick? What's that? He, he picks a well-watered area. Now... I don't know whether Lot knows about the promise God has made to him or not. But this is also a test to the promise. Well, God has said, I'll give you this land. Abram gets to the story to Lot, and they're sitting there like, hey, let's spread out. Abraham goes, you pick. Well, what happens if Lot picks the land they're standing in? Where's Abraham going to go? Well, I guess he's going to go out of the land, right? Which would then throw a kink into the story. But the point is, here's Lot. He's got this choice one way or the other. And fortuitously, he picks the land outside of the promised land, leaving Abraham with the land of promise. Okay? Now, is it a good idea or a bad idea? How do we feel about Lot going east? East is not good. It gives us a queasy feeling anytime somebody goes east. How do we feel about Lot leaving what we now know is the land of promise? 
Now, we're assuming Lot doesn't know that right now, and that's okay. We're letting Lot off the hook, all right? But for us, how do we feel about Lot leaving the land of promise? What's that? <laughs> we, feel, we feel fine and dandy about it. But, but if, we're, if we're a fan of Lot, if we're like, hey, Lot's part of Abraham's family, so he's a good guy, then no bueno, all right? It's not good for him to leave the land of promise. And we talked a long time ago about the nations being divided up, about the land outside of the land of promise being turned over to the, the pagan gods and things like this. And so Lot is, well, he's kind of tossed to the wind, it seems like, by picking the land outside of the promised land. I think most everybody who's reading that is going, oh, this is not going to end well for Lot, we don't think. What's that? Bless his heart. Uh, poor guy doesn't know. This is the dramatic irony, you know. We, we know something that the main character doesn't know. One of the characters doesn't know. And so um, now, so Lot's going to go. Now, there is some debate over where Sodom and Gomorrah actually are located. But most people, most people are going to put Sodom and Gomorrah down in the, toward the southeastern corner of the Dead Sea. So here's my map. Now I'm going to have to point out Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? Okay? So can you find... I'm right in the middle of the Dead Sea. Can you see my pointer? You do see it? No, you don't? You got it? Gomorrah. Found it? Gomorrah. And Sodom is right above it. Sodom... Gomorrah. That's where most people think Sodom and Gomorrah are. So are they, when they're, when they're divvying up the land, they're over here in the Negev? Yes. Now watch these lines over here. These are clever little lines. If I can find my, find my pointer. There it is. Middle of Dead Sea. Go travel east. Boom! I hit an orange line. Okay. This orange line marks Abraham and Lot's path up from Egypt through the Negev, up, keep going up, keep going up, keep going up, keep going up, bingo, right there. Bethel is on the left, Ai is on the right. All right. So they're looking across the land, and they're going, where's the best place for us, for you, for you to land? And Lot getting, looks to the west, to the east, sorry, to the, to the east, and sees the Jordan River Valley, right? He sees this lush area in the Jordan River Valley. Now, they're probably somewhere up here on the rift, somewhere close to Bethel and Ai, and they're looking out over this Jordan River Valley. And let me tell you, in the land, when you get up on top of a hill, Richard, Timothy, tell them, when you get up on top of a hill, how far can you see? Forever you can see. Because you're either on a hill or you're in the deepest valley that there is. So, and you can change topography like that. I mean, it's so crazy. And when you're up on a hill, you can see forever. So he's probably up here somewhere on this, along this ridge looking over into the Jordan River Valley across Jericho, across the plains of Jericho, and he's seeing just lush green everywhere. And he's going, maybe he knows what God's promised. Maybe he doesn't know what God's promised. But he's saying, look at all that. I'm going towards that. That makes sense. Now, this rift right here where the Jordan River Valley is, let me find my point. I can't even find my own pointer. I'm going to have to get a better pointer. 
Um, but in this Jordan River Valley over here, north of the Dead Sea, all the way down to the southern tip of the Dead Sea, even just a little bit past it, that rift, that Jordan River Valley goes. And so there's palm trees down there. There's You can grow just about anything tropical down there. And so he looks at that area, and he, uh, he takes a liking to it. And where does he end up settling? The plant... So close to Sodom, Sodom we think is here, Gomorrah is here, all the way down to the plains of Zoar down here. We get that in this chapter? I can't remember. Is it there in this chapter? Zoar? Yes. Yeah, settles in Zoar, which we think is on the southern edge of the Dead Sea. And that, that whole area would be considered the same region, if you will, all the way around the Dead Sea to the southern edge of it. Okay? So let's get an idea of the geography. Hang on, let me dig back. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to have to get back on, to you on that one. Um, no, it's going to be longer than that. Is it 30? 30? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's pretty big. No, yes, it's, it's big. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a, a pretty big sea. Thirty-one miles. All right, perfect. The millennial engineer says thirty-one miles, so we're gonna go with it. All right, so he is he is probably somewhere right around the southern to southeastern uh, corner of the Dead Sea, and there he stays for just a second. Now, what we also see is that the theme of struggle and separation continues to evolve in the background of Abraham's story. And so as we trace this, if you think about it for just a second, there's first the promise to Abraham, and it's preceded by an account of Abraham's separation from his ancestors. We see that, obviously, in the surrounding nations. Abraham is separated from his ancestors. Then he's separated from his father's house. And then when you have the second statement of promise, he's then separated from his closest kin, Lot. We'll continue to see this idea of struggle and separation on throughout the, the story. In fact, where Abraham tries to snuggle up next to some, some individuals, God says, no, those are not the ones, right? And he continues to separate him away until he is this just singular guy out there in the middle of nowhere before he gives him a, a, a son. And so we see this kind of theme of struggle and separation continue on throughout um, the initial parts of, of his story. Now, for sure, what we do find out is that it does not go well for Lot. Lot gets into trouble in the first part of Genesis chapter 14. Now, so not only do we see this, But what we're also seeing in the story is that those who are joining with Abraham enjoy blessing. And and why is that important? Yeah. God says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. But what we see play out is not only that, but people that are connected to Abraham, people that are near him, benefit from his prosperity benefit by being near him. 
You, you see that in his men when they go to attack. You see that in the kings that, are, that, are, that join forces with him. You see all of these kinds of things play out in connection to Abraham. The people that are around Abraham receive blessing. And it's hinted at even with Lot. That he's there with Abraham and he's, well sure enough, he's blessed with Abraham. But then as he leaves Abraham... Not so good for Lot once he leaves. So he goes out into Sodom and Gomorrah, which, by the way, we haven't gotten to that story yet in Genesis 18, but the reader who makes a mental note of Sodom and Gomorrah also knows there's not going to be great things coming for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So immediately when you know Lot's leaving for Sodom and Gomorrah, you flip a few more pages and you go, oh, that was a bad thing that Lot went there. Uh, You know, much to his chagrin, he didn't even know. But the point is, people that are connected to Abraham receive blessing, and of course, Lot is, uh, is separated. Now, we have this story of this battle that takes place, all right? You get a lot of names. Let's start reading in chapter 14 at the very beginning. I got my Bible pulled up, and he says... Uh, I'm going to try this, okay? There's a whole bunch of names here, all right? They're ancient names. I'm going to go through it with my best, my, best, my, my best guess here. In the days of uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Kedorlamer. Sorry, I had it. I was practicing it. It was really good. Kedorlamer, king of Elam, and title king of Goyim, these kings made war with, and then he goes on to list several names that are in that area, both the kings of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, king of uh, Shinab, Shember, king of Zo- uh, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Now we know lots in those areas, right? So we know lots in that area. Now, who are these other kings that are listed there first in the list? Well, we've got up on our map here uh, sort of a, a, a lay of the land. Now, you remember here's the Dead Sea is down here in the south, and these are the areas where Lot is. All these kings that are listed in verse 1 are all over in the Mesopotamian region. Okay? Now, you know this already. You've been told this already in the story in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 10, you're told where Shinar is. Where's Shinar? You remember. Come on. What is it? Babylon. All right? If you, in, if you hear the impending doom of the key, just bomb, 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 bomb. You know it's Babylon. Okay? So the, we've, we're told already the plains of Shinar is Babylon. Now, uh, Kedilomer, who in this story, is listed in the first verse as number two. Right? He's the second one in the list in verse 1. Is that right? Third one. Sorry, third one. Right? He's listed third in this list. Who's listed first? King of Shinar. All right? That's going to be important because the central figure of the enemies here in this story is actually Kedilomer, who is the king. Right? But he's listed third, which is strange. We're going to get to that in a minute. So, here he is. He is the king. He is what would be called the suzerain. And out there in the, the south of the Dead Sea are a bunch of vassals. They owe him tribute. They pay him. Basically, it's a, it's a racket. Okay? It's, a, it's racketeering. He'd be brought up on racketeering charges if it was today. Basically, they pay him to keep them safe and to not attack them. But they decide. What do they decide? It says in verse 3, 
Uh, all these joined forces, so all the people that are around Lot, south of the Dead Sea, they all joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So they've had enough of it. Well then, uh, another year later, the fourteenth year, Kedalomer and the kings who were with him came and uh, uh, they said, well, we've had enough of this. We're going to go and we're going to extract tribute. So they're coming. They're sending their troops, I guess, up here. In the, I'm in the top right corner. All right. They're sending their troops all the way down from the Mesopotamian region. They're coming down here, down this area, and they're coming to attack these people along the way. So they come in and they start uh, really extracting tribute and killing these people that are in Lot's region. And so what happens in the story? You remember the story probably. You've read it before. What happens in the story? Yeah, they're successful. They come in, a lot of people start running, and some of them fall in some asphalt pits, bitumen pits, they, they're dead, all right? They, people are fleeing in front of them. And what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? Not only were they sacked, but what happened to their stuff? It was taken. Poverty. Poverty. What's the fate of Lot at this moment in the story? It's the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Sad day for Lot. Faces the same thing that Sodom and Gomorrah face. He gets his stuff captured. He himself is captured. And he's taken. All right. Now, there's this Rephaim that pop up in here. And he says... Uh, uh, let's see, 14th year, Kedalomer and the kings who were um, with him came and defeated the Rephaim, um, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shevakariatham. Uh, there we go. We're going to try that. And the, the Horites in their hill country of Seir. Now, the Horites, we're going to see, uh, will later evolve into the Edomites with Esau coming in and Esau's people and that kind of thing. But, um, but the Rephaim were giants, tall people, big people. The reason we know this, or part of the reason we know this, we, we can kind of trace some of this happening throughout um, the Old Testament. We see in Joshua eleven twenty two, get that up there, uh, tells us that the conquest uh, had failed to eliminate all of the Anakim, and so let, let's go ahead and read that there in, in Joshua. Uh, I have that on your page, I think. Do I not have it? Did I, not, I didn't put it on there. Somebody bring up Joshua eleven twenty two and read that out loud. Yeah, and so now, so not only do we get this sort of uh, Anakim that are left in the areas, but what, is, what areas are they left in? Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Those cities ring a bell? Gaza, Gath, Ashdod. What are those cities? What's that? Philistine, Philistine territory. All right, okay. Let's make a, make a mental note here. Now, what, what about 1 Samuel 17, 4, 23? I'm sorry, I didn't. I don't know if I put any of those. No, I did. 
1 Samuel 17, 4, and then verse 23. Somebody read that out loud. All right, so here we have, uh, uh, and then look, in, look at First Chronicles 20, verses 4 to 8. Somebody read that out loud. Both of, the, both of the terms there interpreted giants are both Rephaim, all right? So we know that they're, that they're giants, but then also in Deuteronomy 2.11, we have the connection between Anakim and Rephaim. It says, like the Anakim, that's on the front page of, of your, your notes there, like the Anakim, they also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. We have all three of those terms, or we have two of those terms here in the text that we're looking at. So we're, what we're looking at is really tall people, Right, uh, giants that are that are in the area, typically called Rephaim. So it seems as though these people are coming to extract tribute from the people in the area. They encounter some people that are rather large. Not only are they rather large, they refer to them as giants. Now, these people we find later in the Old Testament start to settle in the region where the Philistines are settling. And then when David comes on the scene, what do we see? But this giant out there in the middle of the battlefield that David has to conquer. And so the, the, what I'm saying is the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament all interpreted these people as descending from the same group of people, later kind of morphing into the Philistines, or merging with, I should say, the, the Philistines, a remnant of the Anakim, the Rephaim, and all of these emes that you start to see pop up in the scriptures. Now, this stuff can get really weird really fast, okay? But do you have any questions about that? I hesitate to ask. <laughs> the point go ahead Mitchell what's that um, yeah uh, so there's a lot of debate about that and mo- I think most most Old Testament scholars now would say yes but there's a lot of question as to how right so I'm just going to leave it at that. Like, uh, we talked about this a while back when we talked about the sons of God, that the Nephilim were thought to be descendants from demonic powers, right? Um, some would even say that the, the souls of the Nephilim are the demonic powers that are in the, around the earth today, all right? So um, how much of that's true or not is, again, this is sort of an open-handed thing. We, we kind of go, I don't know. 
Bible's just not super clear on that. What we do know is that there's some massive people, and they saw them as massive people, and they had a name for them, and they called them giants, and they were terrified of them for the most part. But these people coming from the Mesopotamian area, and especially Babylon, are not scared at all by these people. That's what you're supposed to see, is that they're coming in, and they're kicking tail as they're going down. And so what do the kings around Lot do? They turn tail and run (laughs) and and take their chances. Um, So you get the idea. But the important thing that comes out of this story is that we see one particular person escapes, one particular soldier, and he takes this little route down here south of the Dead Sea. You see my little pointer? He takes a little green route, and he goes all the way up and turns into the red route, and he goes all the way up to where? Where is it? Right here? To Bethel? There's the soldier that escapes in chapter 14. He runs away. He gets away from him. And where does he run? He runs to Bethel. Who's in Bethel? Abraham. Fortuitously, he runs right by his tent. He tells Abram, hey, somebody has Lot. Abram scrounges up some men, goes after him. And do those people stand a chance against Abram and his men? Nope. He gets Lot back. Now, in the story, it's just told, well, he just gets them back. He gets up some men, and they go, and they get them back. But if you think about it for just a second, these are people coming from Babylon. Yes? All of them. Every last one of them coming from the Mesopotamian region. All of them are coming from Babylon. In fact, what's listed first is the king of Babylon. All right. They come down. They take a lot. They tackle some giants along the way. These are bad dudes. All right? SEAL Team 6, right? They take Lot and they head north. Abram hears about it. He scrounges up some sheep herders and he goes up north. <laughs> I don't know if they're really sheep herders. It makes the story good. <laughs> he goes up north. He finds him up north of Dan. So way up here at the top of the map, he finds him up here and he gets Lot back. Now, is the Lord faithful to his promise? Or not. Here's some people that took Lot captive. Abraham's nephew. He's not even Abraham's son or his, you know, I don't know, brother. Somebody like that. This is his nephew. He goes and gets him back. Now, there's some tablets that we found uh, in the area up north in Syria uh, called the Ebla tablets in in a town that used to be called Ebla that was destroyed in about 2250. So that would be before Abram, 2250 B.C. And we found these tablets, these, the Ebla tablets, and there's about 1,700 whole tablets that have a bunch of things written on them. And there's about uh, 4,700 fragments that have things written on them. Um, so they found these in like 1979. And there's some debate, and the reason that I bring it up, I, I, didn't, I don't know, didn't know if I should even include this or not. This is what they look like, by the way. Um, I, yeah, so I think that's about the size of a credit card, roughly, um, if I remember right. But these Ebla tablets have some of the areas mentioned on them, and there's some debate as to exactly what they say. There was a long debate for a long time as to what language they were even written in. 
And some people thought Hebrew when they first found them, and then they, they discovered it's probably more like Amorite, which are very close. And so they begin translating this, and I don't even know if today all of these have finished being translated. Blake, are you aware? If, do you know anything about the Ebla tablets? Um, but I don't even know if they've all been translated yet. But there's some people that say they mention um, Sodom and Gomorrah on there. That's the significance. That was at least touted as going to be the significance of these Ebla tablets. Hey, they mention Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's a lot of people now that are saying they don't say Sodom and Gomorrah. So I, I didn't know if you would hear of the Ebla tablets somewhere around, and so I thought you might ought to at least have some familiarity with what they say. Um, that's really all they, the only reason I brought them up. But um, the one important thing to note in this uh, story, what we're already seeing, is that Babylon is already beginning to play a significant role. As we l- see the list of the kings listed there, the king of Babylon is the first one in the list, even though he plays one of the, little, one of the least significant roles. It's Kedalomer that's the most important one. He's the one coming to extract the tribute and leading the army. But it's the king of Babylon that's listed first. And I think that's a thematic for thematic reasons, because Babylon is playing a significant role throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, even as John closes the New Testament with Revelation, Babylon plays a significant role there too. Babylon is this type or this figure that plays the role of not only dominance, but it's the city of sin. It's Satan's city. It's the thing that's controlled by Satan, by the the devil himself. And we're going to see in Revelation, we would see in Revelation where it's controlled by the beast and its only destination is hell, essentially. And so Babylon already in Genesis, even in the early chapters of Genesis, is already playing a significant role in this story. But the question remains, or it stood out at the beginning, is, is God faithful to the promises that he makes to Abraham? And what we're already seeing is that Abraham would say, I don't know, just right now. He would say, I don't know. But we as the reader would say, it appears yes. It appears the answer is yes. Now, this is significant because God is preparing Abraham for something. He's preparing to give him an offspring. But we're going to see at the very end of that story that when he gets the offspring, he's put to one final test. And the question is, do you trust me? And it appears that at the end of that story, Abraham says, yeah, absolutely. He tells his men when they get to the bottom of Mount Moriah, I'm going to go up there and we're coming back. Right? When we get back, he knows that somehow he's coming back, though he doesn't know how. Questions, comments? Go ahead, Timothy. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's no question that Abraham has these, has these moments, and then he has these moments where he fails to trust. And then he's, it seems like he's starting to get it, and perhaps even his trip down to Egypt had brought something <laughs> to bear there. For sure. Any other Questions? Go ahead. Um, in years past, when I've had like, 
Yeah. Well, okay, so let's, this is going to happen again. This almost same scene is going to play out again. And, um, but God is going to have a conversation with, I believe it's Pharaoh at the time. Uh, he says, you know, I, I didn't do anything with her. I didn't do anything with Abraham's wife. And he says, I know, I kept you from doing something with her, right? Um, so it seems like what we hear the promise early on, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. What we see play out is even deeper than that. Not just somebody saying, Abraham, I curse you, or Abraham, I bless you, but somebody who's just merely against Abraham or for Abraham. And so what, what's playing out in the story, it seems like the author is intending us to see that what's playing out in the story is you just have to be against Abraham. God is going to defend this person. God is with Abraham no matter what. And you may be collateral damage in the process, right? But let's also say that from the other side, it's not cool to take somebody's wife or sister right, into your harem, right? Not, not cool. So it's not like he's innocent of everything, right? So there's that too. <laughs> there may have been a conversation there, too. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. We'll come back to this next week. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word, and I'm grateful for the, uh, both the mystery and the revelation that, that is lying there on the pages of the text. And um, so grateful for how... Um, this comes to light in how it reconciles with the things that we know of history, and um, and we're, we're grateful that we have it. That it still speaks today of the fact that we can trust you in everything that you do and everything that you've promised. And Lord, we know we're waiting on the return of the Messiah, and we know that one day He will come to judge the living and the dead, and that He will call those dead in Christ up from the grave. And we wait for that day. We long for that day. We want that day, uh, even now. We know that as long as you tarry is salvation. Peter tells us that, and we believe it. And so um, we pray that you would give us the gumption, the fortitude to move out into the culture around us and tell the gospel while there is time to repent and believe. We pray that you would give us the fortitude to do that, um, the desire to do that, the compassion to do that. Uh, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.